0: Hello and welcome to Science at All, a podcast about everything science sponsored by the Yale School of Medicine. I'm your host, Daniel Barron, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Paula Croxon. Paula is the Senior Manager for Education Programs at Columbia University's Zuckerman Institute. She's also the Senior Producer for The Story Collider and is an Assistant Professor of Neuroscience at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Paula, as she asked me to call her, holds a PhD in experimental psychology from the University of Oxford and at Mount Sinai studies the neural basis of memory in human and non-human primate models. It's the combination of those three areas of expertise, being a senior manager educational programs, senior producer story collider, and an extremely highly trained and successful scientist that I'm so interested in speaking with Paula. So in the world of academia, Paula has taken a path less traveled and has tiered her energy towards science communication very much and always as a highly trained scientist. And at the height of the pandemic, when I sat down to listen to and uh, edit these conversations, I really enjoyed kind of re-entering that kind of mind space that I had shared with Paula during our conversation and just really want to sincerely thank you for coming to New Haven and speaking with me. Uh, We spent a lovely day in New Haven uh, where she had come to accept a Pointer Fellowship. And uh, the talk that she gave when she accepted the fellowship was standing room only and everyone left inspired and really wanting to uh, use their respective area of expertise to help and improve the world. Um, Just the whole conversation was was wonderful. And uh, just again, thank you for coming out. And so here we go. Paula Croxon. Uh, so Dr. Croxon is... Actually, would you prefer Dr. Croxon or Paula?
1: You can call me Paula.
0: Paula? Okay. That seems more no conversational. One, no one calls me Dr. Croxon. All right. <laughs> you just never know. You <laughs> but know? thanks like, for asking. I'm like a trainee. You always say doctor until you know someone says otherwise. Um, so Paula... Is the senior manager for education programs at Columbia University's Zuckerman Institute. She is also the senior producer for the Story Collider. And she is an assistant professor of neuroscience at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And the combination of those three titles is precisely why we're so interested in talking with you today. Um, So you have a very solid, serious background in neuroscience and in research. And recently taken a career transition into public communication, and could you tell us about what that transition was like? And then maybe we can trace back some of the decision points, you know, through your education and through your life.
1: Sure, sure. Okay, so we we'll start with the decision and go backwards. then. Nice. Okay.
0: <laughs> Why not? Right. Uh,
1: yeah. So the decision. Came fairly recently, so I actually, yeah, I was I was junior faculty at Mount Sinai. I had my own neuroscience lab um, in which I was studying um, the neural and neurochemical basis of episodic memory, um, so the kind of autobiographical life memories that are lost in people with dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I was also doing a lot of science communication work on the side. Um, and I made the decision um, early in the summer um, to switch career trajectories completely um, and took up the position at uh, Columbia Zuckerman Institute. Um, so I remain adjunct uh, faculty at Mount Sinai. Um, I really love for research that I'm involved in and and I plan to continue doing that, um, in some form, um, for some time. Um, but my main job is now communicating science to the public. Um, and, uh, I'm doing that in a number of ways. Um, so the program that I run, um, is, uh, mostly currently aimed at, uh, K through 12 students and teachers. Um, So we have um, a program where we have high school students, um, uh, they have opportunities to come into research labs over the summer and and, um, actually learn research firsthand from um, active researchers. Um, We call that the Brainiac program. um,
0: That's awesome. Which stands for something like brain
1: research apprenticeships in New York I'm missing a, a letter somewhere. Um, yeah, I know I I think back to when I was in high school and I didn't have any opportunities like that. It's incredible mm. um, and that's that's uh, we recruit as closely as we can from from our local neighborhood there which is which is um, upper Manhattan and the South Bronx so lots of kids from Harlem.
0: So this is funded by Columbia University as part of their public outreach program.
1: Uh, So we're partly funded by Columbia University and we're also the beneficiaries of uh, of a number of gifts and donations, um, including from the Stavros Nyakos Foundation, um, from uh, the Bank BNY Mellon, um, from the Pinkerton Foundation. They they fund some of these high school um, uh, scholarships. Um, and, um, again, a number of, a number of other donations go to our different programs. So we've been very lucky and very fortunate to have such great supporters for that.
0: Yeah, it sounds wonderful. Um,
1: and it's also wonderful that, that Columbia University have, have really made this part of their mission to have, uh, science available to
0: the public like yeah. this. And yeah, such a visible and tangible way also. Yeah. It's so how did you, I'm imagining you being in your lab and... You're writing grants, you're writing papers, doing experiments, and what was what was that thought process? Like, what were you looking for?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, what you mean? What was I looking for scientifically? Oh, no, not scientifically, was I not for, for this Life wise. Life
0: wise. Yeah.
1: Uh okay well I think it might be useful to backtrack here um and maybe go a little bit further back um so because it's hard for me to explain how I got here um I had the probably one of the most traditional trajectories in science um of of most people that I know so straight out of high school I went to Cambridge university um I didn't know what Cambridge university was but I was lucky enough to have a high school teacher who was really um, sort of persistent in getting me to think about going to an Ivy league type university. Yeah. Um, and I just about squeaked in.
0: Just about squeaked. I did. I oh, did. What is? Uh,
1: so the, uh, I, I actually didn't make the offer that I had, um, which was for, well, the, the, in, the intricacies of the British academic requirements are not that interesting, but suffice to say, I only just made the grade to get in, um, and was really lucky that I did. I think, uh, Cambridge was really good for me. It made me work really hard. Um,
0: and it's beautiful also. It, it is it's, beautiful. It's pretty lovely place. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I did some amazing non-scientific things there as well. Um, so such as I played in a lot of orchestras and I'm a musician as well. And I, I was able to spend a lot of time doing that. And, um, I was also able to play a lot of water polo, which was another one of my loves. Beautiful. um, but the program that I did at Cambridge was is, is the Natural Sciences Program, which means it's very broad and it allowed me to explore lots of different areas of biological science, which was my real sort of area of of passion. Um, and I ended up in the neuroscience program in my final year there and just really thought it was wonderful. Um, and I had to work very hard to, to stay in that program as well.
0: During this time as you... Uh, did you write? Did you do stories? Or did you have some form of public outreach? Nope. no, nope?
1: Not at all. I had no interest in no public the outreach. <laughs> all right. uh, in fact, I didn't even really think about it as a thing that was necessary or interesting. Um, and so I really was very, very myopic about my scientific career. Um, I did work in industry the year after I graduated um, from college. Um, I worked for Merck uh, for a year, and and the I'm pharmaceutical company. A pharmaceutical okay. company, yeah. So they had a they had a, a research and development site um, just north of London at the time. Mm. Um, so I worked there for, for a year um, and that sort of served to convince me that I needed a PhD if I wanted to have control over the research direction that I went in. You know, if I didn't just want to be in somebody else's lab um, and I was pretty ambitious, so I wanted to do that. So I so I got myself into a PhD program at Oxford, which was a master's then PhD, which sort of resembles the US PhD system in that I had classes and um, some assignments and I did research lab rotations. Um, and I found my lab, um, one lab wasn't enough for me. So I was in two labs. <laughs> <Of course not. laughs> um, and, um, and so, and so during my PhD training, um, I again had really never thought about public outreach or communication at all. So I was really focused on, on my research, um, and it wasn't until I moved to New York that I really it was even aware that that science communication could happen beyond my thesis defence. Mm. Um, yeah, so the way I got to New York was that I uh, started working for for. Um, my postdoctoral advisor in in Oxford at the time. um, His name is Mark Baxter. And he was was great in a number of ways. He was young and brilliant. And um, he taught me a lot about the academic process. um, And he moved to New York uh, about two years after I started working with him. And he asked me and the other lab members if we wanted to come. And I decided to go for it. And um, he was also... um, yeah, he was, he was really sort of open to letting me have my own research direction, which was, which was really exciting for me. Um,
0: so, so you were functioning as a postdoc when you moved to Mount Sinai?
1: I was, okay. yeah, yeah. And um, postdoc is a, is a great time. At least I think it's a great time. Um, because I, yeah, I got to have more academic freedom, um, which was kind of what I'd been looking for this whole time. Um, but I also, you know, had, had, the benefit of mentorship and guidance, and and mm-hmm. so um, I kind of stumbled on this group called New Write, um, which uh, which uh, is a, is a science writing workshop comprised of scientists and. Uh, non scientists who could be writers, journalists um, we also had some some people who wrote uh, poetry or um uh, some people from the theater world, some artists, some of whom rotated in and out, and others who were permanent members um and they adopted me even though I didn't really want to do science communication. Uh, I just really wanted a paper in a high impact journal and I thought that if I became a better <laughs> this is true it's kind of embarrassing now. <laughs> But at the time, that was really what I wanted. And I thought if I became a better writer, I could get that.
0: I think that's pretty sound logic, right? It's got to be a really good writer to get an outside
1: It's <laughs> actually backed up by by some published data now. Huh. Oh, great. That if you use more narrative elements in your writing, you are more likely to be published in a high-impact journal and hmm. you're more, in, more likely to have higher citations as well.
0: I mean, More fun to read, for sure. Definitely. I get the hook. <laughs> A lot of nature neuroscience papers start like that now that I think about it. They, they have do. like some philosophical question or hook or something.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So you
0: go trying to. Get published in higher impact journals,
1: <laughs> and I got my wish. I did. I That's got a paper great. published in Nature Neuroscience, and then I was like, "Okay, great, I'm done." Uh, but at that point, I had got involved with Brain Awareness Week as well. And Brain Awareness Week is is a fantastic thing. Um, it's spearheaded by the Dana Foundation, and it is a week, but usually spills over into the whole month of March. Hmm. Um, when people all over the world, it's it's truly international, um, celebrate the brain um, and um, raise awareness of um, the need for mental health research and for brain research and um, for for taking care of our own mental health. So I thought that this was really cool. And there were some people at Mount Sinai doing like a brain fair where they would invite people from local schools and local kids to come and learn about the brain through hands-on activities. I had a little bit of fun with this. And I thought that it would be cool if we got some local... Um Performers who weren't necessarily doing shows about the brain, but who were doing these kind of nerdy shows. Um, so uh, I thought it would be cool if we got some adult events involved as well as, as things like brain fairs for kids. Um, and so I approached some groups with names like Nerd Night and the Story Collider um, and asked them if they wouldn't mind doing a show about the brain in March. And, and generally speaking, they said, "If you can find us a scientist to be on the show, we will do we will do the show about the brain." So, um, so I kind of became energized by this, and I thought this was a great idea. And I found a scientist for Nerd Night, and then uh, I found some scientists um, for the Story Collider, along with the help of some colleagues. And then the Story Collider um, asked me if I wanted to tell a story on their show and i said yes and then after i hung up the phone with them i called them back and i said no
0: (laughs) i do not want to do this still not convinced huh
1: (laughs) so unconvinced so unconvinced um and there were a couple of reasons for that um one of the reasons was that was that the research i was doing um was um was in non-human primates. And and I felt the need to be very sensitive and careful about how I spoke to people about that. I still do feel the need for that. Um, and so I wasn't sure that standing on a stage in front of people was the best way to communicate that when, you know, a two-way conversation might have been better. Mm. But the other reason was that I was just afraid and didn't think it was important. Um, and so I didn't see why I should, um, but they're very persuasive. Um, so I had this conversation with Erin Barker and she said to me, um, uh, you know, she asked me questions about my life. And so she asked me, for example, is there anybody in your life who suffered with a mental health problem? And I said, oh no, not really. Well, just my grandmother, um, I suppose she had Alzheimer's disease, but everybody, knows somebody with Alzheimer's disease. I don't think that's a very special story. And she said, oh, okay. Okay. Um, well, what about your research? What do you work on? And I said, well, I work on acetylcholine." And she said, acetal who? Um, and I said, it's, uh, it's a target of most of the Alzheimer's drugs that right. work at all. And she said, oh, really? Not a special story, huh? <laughs>
0: <And> so, <laughs> she went, oh. Well, so that, that's an interesting connection. Had you made that connection in your research to your personal life or was this... No. Oh, okay. Well, I had not.
1: <laughs> I had not. So actually the process of telling this story for me was an incredible process because I made this connection. So in the story, I I talked about my grandmother's health, mental health decline, which happened during my teenage years. And I didn't handle it very well. Um, Mm. I sort of, I struggled with it a lot and, and I sort of was dealing with my own identity and then felt a little bit as if my identity was at risk because, because my grandmother was, was, she didn't remember me. Um, and I didn't have a great way of dealing with this. So I just sort of gradually lost touch with her over the years. I didn't really want to talk to her on the phone, for example, because I knew she wouldn't know who was calling. Um, But I felt very guilty about that later on when it was too late to do anything about it. Um, and simultaneously without really being conscious of it, I had started working on this particular area of the brain more because I fell into it because I had found a great research colleague, um, rather than because the, I'd chosen that area. But in learning about the disease, I came to terms with what happened to my grandmother and I began to forgive myself, but almost telling the story was a process of self-forgiveness for me. Right. And so... And so uh, for some reason that was uh, totally unclear to me, they put me last in the show. I had to wait for everybody else to tell their story. I got up, I told mine. I couldn't see anybody in the audience. It was really, uh, you know, I I had no idea how it went. And I got down off the stage and after they wrapped up the show, people came up to me with tears in their eyes and they thanked me for sharing my story and one or two people asked if they could hug me and told me that they'd had a similar experience and it meant a lot to them that somebody got up and talked about how hard it was personally. And I was like, oh.
0: That's what we're doing. (laughs) That's why.
1: (laughs) Because everybody knows someone with Alzheimer's disease. It just hadn't occurred to me that something so relatable could be... As important as it was.
0: Well, also, I mean, did you discuss your research during the story? And I I think that's a huge part of what can really affect people because people have these experiences and they don't know how to make sense of them. Mm -hmm. And so by communicating what you were doing, the way you were thinking about it, I think that was a big, big deal. I mean, did people tell you specifically that? Like, it wasn't just that you were telling your story about your grandma, but you're Helping everyone make sense of it,
1: yes, yeah, right. definitely. I did talk about my research. Yeah, and, you know I talked about how how I felt as if my research was helping us understand Alzheimer's disease because I was working on this um on this neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, which it, it is the target of most of the Alzheimer's drugs that work, but they don't work very well, right. and we don't know why they don't work well. And our research showed that that you need acetylcholine in order to um recover from damage, physical damage elsewhere in the brain, which is another huge thing that happens in Alzheimer's disease, cell mm. loss and cell death is happening. Um, and it it seems as if um, that we need to detect Alzheimer's earlier in order for those drugs to be even remotely effective because by the time that damage has already happened, it's too late. Mm. Um and so actually, it's such an interesting area of research because that theory of acetylcholine being important in Alzheimer's is, is, is really old. And it got dropped for a long time because we felt as if, as a field, we felt as if it didn't make any sense. It mm. couldn't be the answer. Um, and that's because it, it's part of the answer, not the whole thing. Right. Um, and so the research I subsequently went on to do when I became independent, but which was still in collaboration with Mark Baxter, my previous mentor, um, was to try and work with, um, with a technique to increase acetylcholine function in the brain by using um, uh, using DREDs, these um, designer receptors exclusively activated by designer drugs. DREADS is a very cool acronym for a very long thing.
0: Ah, okay. I'm not familiar with (laughs) DREADS.
1: Well, basically it's a switch um, that can increase or decrease the activity of a cell. Um, You have to choose between those. You can't have both in the same cell yet, although maybe at some point. Um, And uh, uh, so it's basically a modified version of a channel that exists naturally in the cells, but it's been modified so so that it only... Uh, responds to an artificial drug that you can give to the animal or maybe one day the person.
0: So you are so you tell the story and then, you know, these people even help you make connections about how they're coping with situations in their own life. And then you go back to the lab and continue researching on Alzheimer's for what, what is the timeline here? I'm trying to draw a number.
1: Um, yeah, so I think it was probably about six or seven years ago that I told that first story. Ah, uh, number so one. it was a while ago. Yeah. After I told it, it just kind of stuck in my head a little mm. bit. And I had been playing around because I was in New Write and I was around writers. I had started writing a little bit. I had a blog at Psychology Today that I didn't yeah. write very much on, but I was trying Um, But after I told that story, I think I realized that I had a bit of a talent for writing for the spoken word and I started to give more talks for the public. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, so I would do these events called things like Nerd Night and Taste of Science. um, And I had a collaborator, Ben Lilly, who was really into doing these weird and wonderful sort of hybrid things. So I did some science comedy. Um, I did a show called Science Exclamation Point. So a scientist gives a five-minute talk and then an improv comedy group uses that as a sort of audience suggestion.
0: Oh.
1: And (laughs) they do
0: like a... Dread receptor, I'm imagining the comedic potential there. You could do a lot. Oh,
1: I haven't done that one. I should do that one. Um, Yeah, it's run by this incredible uh, improv group who who are sort of made up of these very, very smart, very nerdy people um, who... Always invite a guest team. They always have two scientists. It's it's hilarious. The first one I did, I talked about brain evolution um, Ah. and smart animals. Um, I show a lot of footage of monkeys drinking alcohol and crows making tools and animals doing sort of human smart things. And uh, this was great material for them. But I seem to remember their favorite thing was my accent. That got a lot of, yeah, a lot of attention.
0: Yeah.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. They, they made fun of that a lot. Mm. So, <laughs> so yeah, I started doing, doing a lot of these things and I just thought, initially I just thought they were fun, but, but I also started to realize that they had real potential. Well, let me ask
0: you this then. So you had published papers before, yep. I mean, in high impact journals, like Journal of Neuroscience. You had a couple of papers there when you were in grad school. Yep. Very cool work. And so I remember the first paper I ever published, you know, like you scroll on the computer, maybe you get a hard copy and then you look at it like a tangible thing of all that work that you've done. How did something like that differ from like after you told your first story and like the types of writing? Because they're about similar topics, right? Your yeah. science life and then the science communication life. And how does that, how does that change for you? So,
1: I mean, publishing my first paper was a huge deal. I know my boyfriend at the time got it like bound for me in a little thing. You know, I still right. have it, um, and it was it was really it was really special, and it was a sort of tangible thing. And I remember my colleague said to me, "This is your legacy now. You never have to have children. You've done this." <laughs> <And> <laughs> I thought, Fresh <"Phew."> uh, <laughs> freshers up." Yeah. But um, when I told that first story it wasn't a tangible, I mean, there was a tangible thing, actually, there was a recording of it and it's on the podcast for all to hear. Um, but it just something, it changed me. It changed me to tell that story. It made me think about my research in a completely different way. And it was, it connected me, you know, I always was interested in base, what they call basic research. So I was interested in just how the brain works. And after I told that story, I became so closely connected with what the human impact of my work could be in a way that I could have written that in that Journal of Neuroscience paper, <laughs> but I probably wouldn't have believed it. I probably mm. would have thought, oh, you know, that's very, very far in the future that my research will ever be used to help people. Um, and I became aware that I was doing something, I was part of something bigger and more important.
0: Well, something that struck me when I was going through your your papers, you know, like on Google Scholar, is you've studied many different facets of the human experience. Is this okay? Okay, sorry, be back. So you've studied many different facets of the human experience. Like you've studied memory, mm-hmm. right? You've studied expectation, behavioral control, emotion processing. I mean, these are very different domains, and it it, it occurred to me in like okay, here's a person, Paul's a person who really wants to understand human experience scientifically, right? Do you feel like that was a larger goal of, or your interest in neuroscience or what drove you to change all of those, uh, to pursue those different topics?
1: Uh, the honest answer is lack of understanding of how academia works. <laughs> I already admitted this to some students earlier today, so I don't mind admitting it again. So the real real truth is, yeah, I I, I was really curious about what makes us, what makes people people. And I didn't really think about the idea that maybe having a coherent body of work would be a helpful thing for a career.
0: It's not what I was
1: suggesting it was incoherent. No, 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 but I'm suggesting that. I'm suggesting it's incoherent. But what's, um, yeah, so it was partly that, but I think it was the underlying drive for that was that I just wanted to know what makes us tick. And I wanted to know how brains worked. And, you know, I was really influenced by Oliver Sacks writing when I was first deciding on my direction for, um, the end of my undergraduate and beginning of graduate school. Um, you know, I was given a book of Oliver Sacks work and, and I remember reading that and just wanting to know how that happened and also being very, very affected by the way that he wrote. But I don't think I was consciously aware that I was affected by the way that he wrote until a lot later when I started having this storytelling experience myself. And I understood what it was to communicate the process of science, as well as just the drive and the findings. Mm. So I was used to writing the introduction and the... Like when even when we're taught to read a scientific paper, we're taught to read the introduction and the and the conclusions, discussion, yeah. the discussion section. Thank you. Um, more more closely than we read the methods and the results, and that the methods and results themselves tend to get very very polished and pared down, and maybe shunted into a supplementary section of some sort. But one of the things I get asked about a lot now I'm a science communicator is the process of science and what it's like to do that. Mm. And one of the things that I think people are really curious about is how we do what we do and what the thought process is that goes into that.
0: Are those questions, I mean, I don't imagine that they're technical questions, but more like what is it to be a scientist? What does it Mm -hmm. feel like to, I don't know, study non-human primates and acetylcholine yeah. How, do, how do you explain something like that? Um,
1: I try not to explain it. You show. Oh, I <laughs> guess that's
0: what this program is. That's wonderful. You have that funding to bring high school students in. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you when you tell a story, I mean, do you go through the process of what it feels like, like the day in, day out in the lab?
1: Yeah. So for for me, a story lives in the scenes um, that drive forward whatever the, the the arc of the story. So the arc of the story really describes whatever part of someone's journey you, they want to talk about. So that could be a whole lifetime. Mm, yeah. um, or it could be a very small moment. Like I once told a story about a swimming race that I did. open water swimming race race, but still you know it lasted about the scope of that story was about two and a half hours so it doesn't have to be a long a long arc but um within that the real power of a story lies in the scenes um without without real descriptive scenes that put the listener into that place Without a character, which is usually the storyteller in this case, is usually the main character in a personal story. I like to think of those scenes like the more vivid they are, the more possible it is to bring somebody into your world. So when I'm working with storytellers who are scientists, I'll ask them, what did that look like? You know, what what could you see? Who was there? What were you doing with your hands? What are the physical sensations in your body? you know, so that you, they can describe to us the research setting that they're in. And that's so powerful because people just don't, they don't know what that looks like. I
0: think that's fascinating. So you think in scenes, I know some of the methods that you used when you were in graduate school, and I can't imagine a bigger transition in the way you think from like doing MRI analyses, like probabilistic, <laughs> like these big matrices of numbers and figuring that out to... Like thinking in terms of scenes and what you do with your hands, they sound like completely different ways of thinking. And I'm curious how, how you transitioned to that.
1: But I think what happened is that I, that I just started to become, I started to gain mastery around storytelling in the same way that I'd spent all of those hours and all of that time to gain mastery around doing an MRI analysis, for example, Like I learned to do those MRI studies by spending hours and hours and hours in the lab. And one of the things that I did, because this is how I like to do things, is I did everything myself, much to the irritation of everyone around me, probably, um, So, I really wanted to do everything. I learned anesthesia so I could take care of the animals. I learned to run the scanner. I learned to tune the coils with a screwdriver. Ah. I learned to, yeah, I learned to do every aspect. I wasn't as good at some as others, um, but I wanted to do everything and I wanted to know about the process of it. And back in July of last year, I had the opportunity to do that with storytelling because I started to work for the Story Collider part time as a producer uh, for the New York shows. So I went from telling the story um, from these couple of episodes that I'd had up on stage where I was where I was actually telling my own, I started to learn about the process of telling a story. Wow. And I started to be able to show other people how to do that and take somebody who'd never told a story before and look for those things that they would need to do in order to tell a story and to help them through that process. Or to take someone who has told a thousand stories before and help them fit it into the scientific mold a little more, for example, because Story Mm. Collider really is stories about science. Even if someone's not a scientist, which is fine, (laughs) we still want there to be something about science in there because the science is everywhere.
0: So you break down... Like you take your reductionist approach to storytelling, to its components, and then you have trainings that, you help know, people do that now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we also have a workshop program, Excellent. which has been a total joy for me to be a part of because really figuring out how to show people the process of using storytelling and narrative to bring their work to life has been a really cool part of my storytelling career, which which is still a side career for me. It's been really one of the most wonderful things I did. And in some ways, I think was a catalyst for me switching to, to doing science outreach and communication full time.
0: I'd like to ask you more about that. So you described yourself as being very like nose to the grindstone, like academic, you know, pathway, you're setting yourself up with grants, you got multiple grants. And then like, what, what was that like sitting there trying to make that decision to stay full-time research or bring this other aspect, the science communication into your life? Like what, what thoughts were going through your mind?
1: I think it was probably the hardest decision I've ever had to make. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's, science was, I don't want to say that science was my the only thing in my life because it, it definitely wasn't. I've always been lucky enough to be a balanced person who likes to do weird things like open water swimming, and I've always been a musician, <laughs> and so I have I have lots of facets to my life. But I chose very early on that science would be the one. Um, and then I also chose really early on that science research, active science research, would be the way that I went. And I was very intentional about that, But and and I never considered anything else. And so I never considered another type of career before. Um,
0: you loved tuning those coils with a screwdriver.
1: I, In some way, in some weird way, I really did. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. I really did.
0: You had mastery over something and you understood it, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, that was really, it was such a big part of me. Mm. So I think the first thing for me was that I needed to accept that there were many ways to be a scientist. And I had told myself for a long time that if I wasn't tenure track faculty, and if I didn't have this many grants that I didn't have this many papers, then I wasn't a scientist. Um, and I know that's not the case now um, and I'm a little embarrassed by that and I hope that I didn't make anyone feel like less of a scientist because they didn't have those things you know like I think I I, I see a lot or I hear a lot of questions from junior researchers or from people in the science communication field for example questioning whether they're scientists at all because they don't have all of these accolades and I, yeah. I realize how that's not important for being a scientist. It's important for some things, usually more accolades. Um, mm. But it's not, you know, to be a scientist, you just have to have science in your life and embrace it. And that's that's something that I'm never not going to have. So I'm always going to be a scientist. Um, but I think the other thing was that I just have always looked for a place where I can make a real difference. And I really saw science communication as a place where I could do that. Um, in a way that was just very, very different from, from my research direction. But I agonized over it for a long time.
0: I imagine. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm not sure if I even know how long I agonized over it.
0: Six years, maybe.
1: <laughs> uh, and it, it was clearly apparent to everybody around me, except for me. By the time I made my, des- my decision, people said to me, oh, you figured it out then.
0: <laughs> what sort of advice or I'm imagining, I'm imagining people in the department do like stage interventions or I, I don't know, like trying to persuade you one way or another. I, I'm curious what sort of things people said uh, on both sides.
1: Um, yeah. So I'm really, I'm really fortunate to have great colleagues. Um, so by and large, they did um, tell me how much they wanted me to stay um, and I didn't take that any other way than the way that I think it was intended, which is that they wanted to have me as a colleague and and would miss me if I left the field. Um, And in fact, I'm really lucky in that long after I left the field, I still have had people ask me to come back. So I've had multiple opportunities to think about my decision and decide whether it was the right one for me. Um, And that's been really helpful for me. I did. There was a little bit of me that thought that when I left, that would be it. And I wouldn't have the opportunity to go back. It Sounds scary. I um, tell yeah. you,
0: as a, as a junior trainee right now, that takes a lot of guts.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah it does. And I also realized that they, that it isn't that cut and dried. And that there was definitely a way for me to go back if I wanted to do that. Um, and there was a way for me to stay involved as well, which is the, the route that I chose was to, to hopefully stay involved in the research in some way. Um, and I'm also lucky enough to be in an institute where there's a ton of amazing research going on. Um, and so that's, that's also been a nice way for me to keep my connection. You know, I go to a lot of science talks. Um, I still give them occasionally when I can. Um, so yeah, that's, that's been kind of nice. I thought it would be all or nothing and that's not the case, but I also had a lot of people who I think really recognized that that was something that I had a real talent for, I, I mean, science communication by that.
0: Oh, yeah, both. I think you've adopted both.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. So, but but they, for every colleague who wanted me to stay, sometimes even the same colleague would also say, well, "I really see that this that this is the right thing for you to do, and that you're going to be great at doing this." And one person said, "Oh, you got out. <laughs> you made it.
0: <laughs> Good for you. You just did that.
1: so but now yeah I don't know it made the world seem a lot more fun for a while I think there was a bit of me that just thought I can't leave because if I leave then then that's it I close that door um and I think I was kidding myself about that I think I think that, that it's a much more fluid world now than than it used to be and um I could be wrong but I feel I feel like I can have the connection to the research and I can and I can do this work. You know, the one thing that was clear is I couldn't keep doing both at the same level of intensity as I had been.
0: Yeah, I remember you were interviewed after you received a science educator award from the Dana Foundation. And you talked about how you were trying to encourage people to be science communicators and saying that, you know, do it in your spare time if you have to. and. It really impressed me because I I felt like in that comment, you were uh, kind of telling a story about how much of your spare time went into this at one point. (laughs) (laughs) How did you, how did you balance that? Because you were telling stories, you were writing this blog, you were, you know, involved with this community and also still running a a lab. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Probably quite badly. I think I don't know if I, I don't know if I balanced it well. Um, it would definitely wasn't sustainable at the level that I was doing it at. Um, but broadly speaking, I found it useful to only take on one science communication project at once. So if I was working on a story, I would try not to be writing blog posts at the same time. <laughs> and if I was writing a nerd night talk, then I would try and wait before I did a science comedy event. Um, uh, Brain Awareness Week was always the exception to that rule. So in Brain Awareness Week, I invariably did something every day. Um, and that's just because I think that's such a valuable week for neuroscience, essentially. Mm. Um, but I, the reason that I said that was not just because I, th- I actually don't think that people should have to do science communication work in their spare time if they're full-time researchers.
0: Mm.
1: Um, I, think, I think that it, it could easily be the case that people with a talent for science communication, could that could be our service work. Oh, interesting. Mm. So, you know, I used to spend some of proportion of my time teaching and sitting on thesis committees and, and doing all of that valuable good stuff. Um, admissions committees and hiring committees and and it would have been very helpful for me if I could have contributed to my academic career while I was doing the science communication work instead of it being so clearly something that had to be done in my spare time.
0: Do you know institutions that support that in a way like as as a form of professional service is what you're suggesting? Yeah. Right that's then considered as part of your tenure you know promotion packet or Whatever it's called.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. Exactly.
0: I do think institutions th- do that now?
1: Um, I don't know. is, is my honest answer. It wasn't mm-hmm. something that I looked into in like, oh, I wonder if I went to this place, would that be the case? Mm. Um, so actually, that is, it is possible that some institutions do do that. Um, and I do think somebody asked me earlier today if I thought it was possible that that would become so in the future or become more more widely accepted in the future and i think that is possible as well i think as we continue to see the value and the importance of communicating science with and i mean the public is a big
0: funder of science
1: yeah the public's <laughs> a big funder of science yeah so you know communicating with with people who make policy decisions for example p- communicating with with the future scientists it, is it's not just supplemental is essential if we if we're to have science funding and if we're to have a future science right. then, then we have to do it so i think we're starting to see that now more than ever and and so i hope that that will be the case in the future so that people who want to do this can can make it truly part of their lives and mm. not feel as if they have to choose so much. But the reason that I make that point is because a lot of people ask me how I made this career switch. Because there are many people who would like to make this switch from research. You know, maybe they're finishing their PhD or they're in a postdoc now and they want to switch to doing science communication or outreach. And the question of how I did that is is a tricky one. And I didn't have a usual route into that because a lot of people make this decision at the end of a PhD. There are fellowships available that they can take on. Um, But they, yeah, not everybody makes that decision right then and there. And it's a lot of pressure to say, OK, I've finished my PhD and these things are available to me and I've got to go take that fellowship or that internship or whatever it is. Um, And, you know, in some ways I was alleviated of all of that by not even realizing that science communication was a thing until I was (laughs) in my second postdoc and well into my 30s. And so at that point, I could only do it by working on it in my spare time and making connections. Mm. And I was lucky in many ways that I was in New York City and I was in such a vibrant, supportive community Um, But I also have never known such a supportive community in general as the global science communication and outreach community. I mean, I just I just found so many people lifted me up in so many ways and that I was able to do that for other people.
0: People want to get in touch with you or be exposed to more of your uh, stories or your writing. Where could they reach you?
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. If if you want to hear more from me, um, then you can follow me at Paula Croxon um, on all of the things. And uh, you can also uh, check out more about the Zuckerman Brain Institute, um, which is at Zuckerman Brain. And you can also follow the Story Collider at Story Collider. And if you have a story to tell and you think that you might want to uh, tell it on one of our stages, you can pitch us at stories at storycollider.org.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks again to Paula for being on the podcast. It was such a treat interviewing and spending some time with her. Uh, You can find Paula on Twitter at Paula Croxon. Again, that's at Paula Croxon. You can also visit her website, which is PaulaCroxon.com. She has a couple of different uh, profile pages, one at Mount Sinai and another at Columbia University. You can also find her work on Google Scholar and see some of the really cool science she talks about during our conversation. Uh, Thanks to the Yale School of Medicine for sponsoring the podcast, to Adrian Bonnenberger for producing the podcast, and to Ryan McAvoy for his awesome help, Sound Editing. A special thanks to you for listening. And again, my name is Daniel Barron. I've been your host, and we'll see you next time here on Science at All.